Okay, uh, welcome back to the Paperless Federalist. I'm Justin. And I'm Kerry. All right, Kerry, we are back today uh, with uh, episode uh, number 17, or Federalist Paper number 17. Uh, this one, again, is written by Alexander Hamilton. Uh, same subject continued. The insufficiency of the present confederation to preserve the union from the independent journal uh, to the people of the state of New York. And as we have previously designated you to be the summarizer, um, I will uh, kick it over to you then to uh, give everyone a quick uh, top to bottom on on this episode. All right. Very well. Um, well, the theme of this paper overall, uh, Federalist Number 17, is that, you know, the American people don't need to worry about the federal government taking over uh, all the powers of the government uh, and, you know, being tyrannical because the states have a closer connection to the people and will be able to push back against the federal government. Um, Hamlin starts out by saying, look, some people may object to the Constitution because it can make a government that's too powerful at the federal level that could absorb the powers of the states. But Hamlin's like, you know, Hamlin says he can't even understand why a federal government official would even want to do that because all of the, all, even though all of the wide-ranging importance or strategic level issues are federal matters, federal matters are not, federal officials aren't going to want, over, want to take over state concerns. And even if they wanted to, it would just be too much trouble for him. Hamlin goes on to say, even if the federal government wanted to take over, the people would side with the states. The states would actually be more likely to infringe on federal power because state laws have a closer connection and influence over the people uh, who are their citizens. So um, sort of uh, counterintuitively, if you've been listening to the arguments of the anti-federalists, uh, who say we got to be afraid of this tyrannical federal government. Hamlin says, actually, we need to reinforce federal power as much as possible to defend against this great power of the states. Hamlin says that, look, the people in America really generally care, not just America, people generally, people generally care more about things that have a more immediate effect on them, not things that are distant and have an indirect effect. Government is like personal relationships. People care most about the things that they're closest to them. So they for, so he says, look, you care most as an individual you, in a non-governmental setting. You cl- care most about your immediate family. And then the neighborhood that you live in. And then the community at large, you know, being the state or the federal government. But you care most about the people you see every day, you interact with every day. What's close to you. And the, the analogy there is that the state is like your family and the federal government is more just like this community at large. Um, and he says, look, this is, this is reinforced by the real way that people interact with state governments every day, uh, as opposed to the federal government, which might not affect them as much. He says, look, there's a lot of relatively small matters the states are going to be in charge of, but these small little things that people are going to be doing to interact with government are almost exclusively going to be at the state level. Um, in addition to that, the greatest governmental influence over an individual is going to be civil and criminal justice, which is purely a state concern. You know, the justice system, whether you're talking about the civil justice system, about what you can sue someone and be sued for, and the criminal justice system that, you know, what you're going to be thrown in jail for and can stop other people from doing to you, um, 
That's a purely state matter at the time he's writing this. And he says, because the states are responsible for these justice systems, the public's going to think of them as the most important governments to them in their everyday lives, and, and not the federal government, which is just this sort of distant shell government that doesn't really affect them very much. And so because of this, Hamilton argues that we have to strengthen procedurally the federal government to resist the urge of the, pe the people in the different states to favor their own state governments against the federal government. Um, because the impact of federal government actions aren't going to be as apparent to regular citizens. And they're going to be mostly dealt with by individuals involved in larger multi-state business or international you know, operations that need to care about how things go in and out of the country as a whole. You know, basically, you have to be involved in things at a pretty large scale to really care about the federal government at all. Regular people don't really care because it's not going to affect them. And then he goes to his historical analogy. Hamilton likes to use historical analogies a lot to justify his points. And in this paper, his historical analogy is the feudal systems of sort of like dark age Europe. He says, look, in the feudal systems, and, you know, feudal systems are one where you have you know, people who work the land, then lords above them, and then those lords serve higher-level lords, and then those higher-level lords serve like a king or an emperor or something like that. We'll just say a king for now. So he says, look, even though you might have had in feudal Britain or Germany or France this king who's way up there in charge of everybody, regular people working the land didn't care about the king as much. They cared most about the lower nobles, like a baron or something, that they interacted with most often. The baron is the one who they had, who let him use the land, let them use the land to grow crops on. He's the one that they had to pay a percentage of their crops to. Um, their interactions with the barons were much more important to their everyday lives than whatever the king might do. And because of this closer connection with the nobles immediately above them, the barons and not the king, he said, you know, in the dark ages and the feudal systems. Um, the barons were actually able to uh, resist the authority of a, of a king and impose their own rules on the land instead of having to enforce the king's laws and authority very strictly on their own land. And because all the people there, the king didn't matter to them as much. Now I say, okay, granted, a particularly popular or skillful king might be able to override the barons. But, you know, with his, their raw force of charisma or raw power in the form of military uh, uh, resources. Um, but usually this wasn't the case. And, you know, it was an exceptional circumstance when the king could do that. He said typically the people were more closely connected to the barons and the lower nobles, and that would help them resist the authority of the king. And the only times he found it wasn't generally like that um, was when uh, a no when the uh, lower nobles, the barons, were so tyrannical and detested that the people would appeal to the higher authority of the kings to say, "Look, this person's horrible, get rid of them." And you know the implication being, well, if a state is so bad that their own people uh, are oppressed, then maybe the federal government should counteract what they're doing a little bit. And then, to sort of close out the paper, he gives this example of, look, a great example of where this happened most regularly is the country of Scotland. 
where the lower nobles were very powerful, and for most of Scotland's history as an independent nation, the Scottish kings didn't have a lot of control over them because people cared a lot more about their lower-level nobles. And then, so to, to connect it all back at the end, Hamlin says, look, the state governments, if it's not obvious, are the low nobles of feudalism. They're generally a lot closer to the people, and the people are going to care a lot more about them than the federal government. And to, you know, to counteract this, to make sure we accomplish the federal goals that we're trying to accomplish, you know, which we've gone into before of having uniform trade rules, you know, uniform, strong military, etc. We've got to make sure we strengthen the federal government to avoid the tyrannical power of the states. And that's that's the paper in brief. Um, and it's a relatively short paper. It's relatively uh, simple ideas. But uh, I think in the uh, hindsight of history, uh, and where we are now, I, I think there's a lot we could discuss and break down about uh, what's still true, what was only true then, and uh, you know, if the, if it's not as true, what's that mean for us now? Okay. Well, I know you mentioned prior to this, you had some thoughts and where you, how you wanted to handle this paper and uh, kind of jump off on things. So, uh, I, I I will say this: I, if if I can, before I let you get into things, I have a question for you, Carrie. Yeah. Do you does your neck hurt? Do you feel the whiplash? What do you mean? <laughs> well, you know, I, I never realized how much Jay, uh, not Jay, because Jay's hardly around, right? Uh, Hamilton and uh, Madison uh, <laughs> really like to talk out of both sides of their mouths. Um, and and there are so many times when the states are falling apart. They're horrible. They can't collect two cents in taxes, and they're on the cusp of being completely inept and overrun by foreign powers if we don't form this strong federal government. And then there's papers like this where, hey, don't worry about having a strong federal government because, you know, those giant behemoths uh, that are state governments that uh, are going to be so closely tied to the individuals, and they're the ones with the real power, and we got to worry about the states overrunning the federal government because they're just so strong and well-functioning to manage the, you know— the everyday affairs of all citizens. Uh, I just, you know, am I wrong in feeling uh, that, uh, you know, when the argument suits them, the states are great and they're strong. And when I could see that, you know, but if I could channel yeah. Hamilton for a second and yeah. try to be his uh, spin doctor, go ahead. <laughs> uh, I think how he would try to tie those two divergent threads together is by saying, well, look, what it is, is they are both simultaneous is that, they're they're incompetent, they're feckless, they're ineffective, but they're also tyrannical, arbitrary, and capricious. So <laughs> they're doing horrible things all the time to the people who are living there. They're screwing up the whole country, but they're not doing it in an organized fashion. They're just doing it according to whatever random whims or mob rule of the local populace. I hear what you're saying, but I mean, in this paper, he goes on about how, you know, the, the, the local government is just going to manage everyone's day to day and, you know, criminal justice, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, um, but he doesn't say know. to manage it well. He just okay. says to manage it. Well, come He's, on. <laughs> they have the power. They don't. I mean, I think his argument would be in this yeah. paper, the barons, the lowest level nobles were the ones who interacted directly with the people. Yeah, They didn't necessarily do a good job of it. That's why they often got replaced or had rebellions. But 
the king procedurally the king couldn't do it because yeah. technology then didn't allow the king to hmm. instantaneously communicate with all of his middle managers all over the, the local governments all over England. Okay. He had to rely they had to rely on feudalism because you you physically could only be so far from the people you managed because your fastest mode of communication was horse. So Yeah. You know that's I don't know. It's not quite as effective as a fax machine. I don't know. I, I think uh, they're the Hamilton and Madison are a bit opportunistic. Uh, <laughs> oh, I won't dispute you there. You know, I think they would say so are well, so are the NFL. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, yeah. For me, the biggest question I, I that I kept asking when I was reading through this yeah. paper is is has the do the time has changing times and technology made this paper no longer true because you know there's a there are reasons we don't have feudalism now you know Mm -hmm. and among those are and there's reasons that we've talked about before that they thought democracy could only be so big before and a lot of it had to do with communications technology Mm -hmm. you know um this again strikes fairly close to home for for me as someone who lives in kentucky in that one of the major reasons that kentucky which used to be part of Virginia, one of the reasons Kentucky separated Virginia was not any personal animosity, but just the fact that you have one side of the then existing state of Virginia that's on the eastern seaboard. You have the other side of, you have the other half of this then existing state of Virginia that's on the other side of a huge mountain range, the Appalachians. And so, you know, if you have to register, for example, your land claims in the capital, Every time you're in Kentucky, you know, and you want to stake a claim on a piece of land in Kentucky, you've got to travel over the mountains and go to some, you know, the capital of Virginia to register your claim. And you got to go back. You know, it's hard to do routine business when you have to cross the mountains every time to do it. And so after Kentucky split away, you have a capital that's on the same side of the mountains as you. And it makes things a lot easier. Yeah. Back in the late 1700s. Okay. Um, but there's a lot here, you know, we, we're talking about one technology is different and two, the way we delegate power is different. Um, you know, and the civil war is probably the most influential event in that of sort of before the civil war, there was a state centric distribution of power. Mm-hmm. And after it, it's much more federal, you know, federal government centric. Well, we touched on that. You know, we've talked about that in the past about how some of these Federalist Papers were almost prophetic in the sense that they sort of forecasted the, you know, the Civil, Civil War. The Civil War, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and then interestingly, like we, we talked uh, the last last time, Paper 16, about how we're now seeing a resurgence of I don't want to say that the United States is headed to a civil war. That's not what I'm trying to say. But we we had hinted at the idea that we hadn't seen a level of state disobedience, presumably like that I, that I think either of us could recall. As, and I mean in the sense of states being disobedient towards the federal government. Um, systematically, since, at least. Systematically. I mean, you've had like different since, since, internet since campaigns for no, 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 no. our but states. I mean, like, like the state or... government saying we're yeah. not going to apply federal We're not going to enforce national laws. We're not going to enforce national Generally. laws. Generally. As a rule in this state, we're going to ignore federal law. It's because on several issues they have, but... Well, they st- 
my point being is that we haven't seen that level of state disobedience since the war until more recently with the uh, marijuana issues uh, you mentioned in, I forget what the other one was. Um, I think uh, the other one was sanctuary cities. Sanctuary cities, yes, that's right. There seems to be, you see this uh, power struggle. Um, yeah. And, and I don't know, I just thought it was, you know, it was, it was just kind of interesting again. How, how yeah, this is sort of a variation you know? on this thing. I think the way this is different, though, is, more, is less about – it's less about the struggle and more about where the power lies as a process issue. Mm-hmm. And I, was, I have to say that of the papers we've read so far, this is one uh, where I read it and I'm most skeptical and most think – I said to myself several times reading that like, I don't think this is true anymore. And I think when he wrote it, when Hamilton wrote this paper, this probably wasn't controversial at all. This was just describing, well, this is just how it is. And it was how it was. But if you read it now, I don't think this is how it is now. I mean, I, I because for just, uh, you know, what's everyone going to be doing soon? Filing their federal taxes. Yeah. Um, back in the late 1700s, early 1800s, um, you know, there wasn't any federal income tax. You didn't file your federal taxes. The only taxes you're really worried about, because the federal taxes were tariffs, only yeah. merchants. Those. The only taxes you cared about was your local and state taxes, the local and state tax collector. And so there's so many, you know, the federal government touches our lives so in so many ways today that it just didn't. Then. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the foundation of his entire arguments changed. Um, and well, even even in the big things, he talks about civil and criminal justice. There's a lot back then. The federal government really left that almost entirely to the states. And over the course of our country, there's a lot more issues that have become captured by the federal government, for lack of a better term. Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the one that always launches to my mind, you know, the U.S. Supreme Court will issue a decision about a particular part of the criminal justice system and it'll send shockwaves through things. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the ones that happened recently in the in the sense of in the grand scheme of things mm-hmm. was the Crawford v. Washington decision where uh, Justice Scalia penned the decision and it read like a history lesson yeah. um, and really said, no, you know, the criminal defendant has the right in the confrontation clause of the Constitution to confront the accuser and can't be tried, you know, via affidavit. Uh, you know, he's got the right to cross-examine the lab tech that says, yes, I ran the test and it was in fact an illegal substance. Or he's got the, he or she, the defendant has the right to literally force the accuser to appear in court and say that they did or didn't do something. Uh, and that's a real basic fundamental principle to the criminal justice system and to who we are as a nation because of the way crimes used to be prosecuted mm-hmm. previously before America in our in our ancestral sort of political yeah. roots where you know their accuser would come before accused and a prosecutor would show up with a stack full of signed affidavits and say this is what the people say what say you you know and a criminal defendant and more I mean of course I'm I'm summarizing greatly yeah. there, but my point being is that they could be prosecuted without actually having a chance to address, and you can't cross-examine a piece of paper, you know. Yeah. And and that was Scalia's point, and that and that was something that had sort of had sort of become more and more prevalent in the criminal prosecution, and this forced a lot of changes in in the prosecution of criminal cases where you really had to have everyone there, and everyone had to be available if a defendant wanted to force everybody to show up to court. Now, of course, the defendant can of course waive making the lab tag, yeah. you know, and that yeah. kind of. 
can stimulate yeah. to the mission of evidence. That's, well, I think that's, that's your choice. And so what well, you're talking about generally is the coercive you know, power of the Supreme Court and expanding the expanding the amount to which every all the state criminal laws have to conform to yeah. a federal structure on certain key issues covered by the Constitution. A more recently, I think. One. Yeah. I think I think what's most interesting for me is, you know, as we're talking about how there's so much that used to be state issue, state power, state control, state law, especially when we talk about civil and criminal justice, whereas now more and more of it is federal where it touches your life and not just the state you live in. Yeah, I could almost see there's certain you know, there could be a crowd out there who thinks, ah, you know, people who are, are fearful of state government feel like everything's become too federalized. Yeah. Who would say, oh, see, they are grabbing all the – the federal government has grabbed all the power. You should – Hamilton and the federals do want it to be localized. But – and to an extent, there's a point to that. You know, the big hot-button issues of our time, you know, health care is one of them. Um, you know, use of eminent domain at higher federal levels, uh, you know – Areas where it's been more of political mm-hmm. conflict about whether this should be a federal issue or not, that does exist. Where people talk about, well, that shouldn't be a federal issue. We have to be together. We should, this should be local control. What I find more interesting, though, is that that's really the the minority of the of the control of that's been fe- pe- passed at the federal level are those sort of issues. If you look, if you compare now to 1801, say about how the power was distributed. Mm-hmm. Most of it is not controversial. Most of it has not been forced or coerced of the federal government going in and saying, we demand this power, you've got to give it to us. What's amazing to me, if you're going to take that position of the federal government has done a big power grab, is that so much has not been forced, but been sought. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, it's oh, you so... Mean, you mean the states seeking out and saying, here, federal government, can you do this for us? Is that what you're saying? This, well, the states of states sometimes, but also the citizens of the state, the okay. citizens generally. Like even the most ardent and you know, even the most ardent local small government anti-federal person now, there's so much you think about, there's so much that exists that they wouldn't be angry about it at all, probably. Um, the I'd surprise you. What I think of, for example, is the fact of some of the things that most concerned Hamilton at the time. For example, you know, from you and I in law school talk about like the uniform commercial code, mm-hmm. you know, the fact that when you go from state to state, a large part of the fact that the civil law, the civil law has been sort of unified much more than the, 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 the criminal law mm-hmm. in that if you go from state to state to state, yes, there are differences from state to state about how civil law will apply, you know, the terms that are valid in contracts or not. Yeah. But in commercial law, like other areas of civil law, there has been a lot of voluntary effort on the part of people throughout the country to try to have a uniform framework over important key aspects of the law and have those apply uniformly across the state. That was what to me is interesting is when you compare our time to the Hamiltonian time is, yes, there's certain hot button issues that we argue and disagree about whether it should be federal or whether it should be state. Mm -hmm. But a ton of what we have federalized now has sort of been by consensus. You know, mm-hmm. how many how many times do you see protests, uh, pr- protest movements about, well, we need to really get more local control over the terms of commercial papers? <laughs> I haven't seen any. 
Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you know? I know it's a hot button issue is, you know, the, the regulation of uh, the, the uniformity of the interstate system. I, I know people are up in arms about. <laughs> yeah, uh, now, granted, they don't like how all their roads match and the on ramps and off ramps go in the same direction in every state. <laughs> You know, <laughs> and I understand what some of what I'm saying too is, you know, commerce clause, you know, what the commerce clause is also absorbed. And if you tried to pull away from it now, you yeah. they might be able to say, well, no, it's too late. You're locked in by commerce clause of, and regulation of commerce yeah. and everything like yeah. that. But we're not straining it. We don't seem to be straining it that leash. Yes, you'll have differences from state to state. It's really more amazing to me if compared, compared now to mm-hmm. 1801, all of the things that we just assume are the same going from state to state of yes, government has gone this direction and certain people don't agree with how far it's with how far it's gone. Yeah. But at the same time, seems like a lot of people do agree because they're they don't have a problem with it. You know, people want to go from state to state and not have most of you know, not go to a state and have everything be completely different. Yeah. I mean, the reason I think you know, it applies mm-hmm. is to just I mean, I'm not intended to just go on for a rant on federal yeah. versus state. The reason I think it applies to this paper and is important is that the whole premise of this paper for Hamilton was most things you care about and are important to you are state law issues. And I think that was true then, but it's not as true now. On any given issue, if you think, can I do this or not? Yeah, I would um, say most – yeah, I think you agree. I mean you were standing around the water, proverbial water cooler in any office today, people are not arguing about, you know, hey – did you see the, you know, they wanted to change the speed limit in the school zone or at a stoplight? You know, like it's usually everyone's talking about the national dialogue. Um, yeah. You know, and, and, and the things that are in the national media, whatever they be, you may be, you know. Mm-hmm. And even when you are trying to change state laws, oftentimes now it's not because there's a specific unique issue in your state, but it's because there's it's part of a national debate going on. Okay, so Hamilton talks here in about the third or fourth pages, and he talks about it's known human fact. Uh, it's a known fact in human nature that uh, affections are commonly weak in, in proportion to the distance or diffusiveness of the object. I don't think he's wrong there. I actually think he's right. But in what we're talking about now, everyone walks around with what in their they walk around with what in their pocket or their hand. Now, I say everyone, most people mm-hmm. in the country walk around with a smartphone. And, and so mm-hmm. the national and the federal conversation is literally in their hand at all times if they want it to be. Yeah. And, and it's, it's right in front of their face. And so unlike where in Hamilton time, the thing that was in front of the average citizen's face was the common going-ons of, of the town or the city or the state. And the, yep. the news of the federal government was days away, you know, in some instances, uh, depending on which state you're in and, you know, the transportation of news. Now the phone is your constant feed of of information, and usually people are focused in on. Now they could just as easily, you know, get the 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 Twitter posts and updates of of, of their local communities, you know, rec centers. <laughs> okay, but most people seem to be locked in, focused in on the national attention yeah. over the over the thing. And you know, I mean, the device itself maybe is helping to contribute to the shift in focus of the people. I, I agree. Know. The, you know? nationaliz- the nationalization, the comfort level of citizens with nationalization of power seems to have a, a very strong correlation with national media, the, with communication. Yeah. I would broaden it to say communication technology yeah. generally, yeah. both, you know, in how easy it is to get information, how easy it is to transmit information. Yeah. And 
I think a different because you seem a lot closer to people who are physically distant now than you might have 200 years ago. Um, you're more likely to feel connected and that your can answers can be solved at a higher level than you might have before. Hmm. And I mean, look, I think it, a really good indicator of that for people is if you ask most people who the president is, they can name the president. If you ask them who their federal senator was and federal representative was, they could probably name those people. You ask them who their state representative and state senator are, probably don't know. And I think that's a good de facto indication yep. that the state level of power to them doesn't seem as important anymore as it once did. Yeah. I think that contradicts Hamilton. It does. He does seem to think that people are going to be focused mostly on on the state and local local issues. I don't know. So I do agree yeah. with you. I do agree that the baseline is still true of as a general human tendency, people What's tend that? to think the, who tend to care the most and be, feel closest to what affects them most immediately. Mm -hmm. But at the time Hamilton wrote this, he has the assumption based on the technology and how things go at the time of what's physically closest is also going to feel closest to people emotionally. I don't think that's true as met now because I think that people's knowledge, for example, about their elected representative shows that yeah. they feel closer ties emotionally to their national representatives. And maybe that's because they feel like those national representatives have a better ability to solve problems that matter to them. I mean, that's something it would tend to suggest. So where does, uh, where do we go from here when we're talking about this, uh, this paper at this point? Have we, have we, cracked it this quickly i don't know well i i think uh i don't think we're done okay because i i think that you and i agree that what he wrote is no longer true as far as you know people now feeling more closely connected to states so i guess the next step is how does that affect the power balance between the states and the federal government i mean my conclusion i think it's hard to avoid a conclusion that it's a very different power balance. I mean, at the time that this paper came out and for the first 50 to 100 years of a government, there was a, you know, a good argument to be made that most of the practical everyday power resided with states up to and including, um, you know, when the Civil War happened, when a lot of people were aligned with state loyalties rather than national or regional national loyalties, i would say yeah um but following the civil war up to the day you've had an acceleration of the fact that i think states as states and their ability to solve things or their ability to lobby and push issues as states that they care about as state units mm -hmm. is practically non-existent now that's not to say that people don't make local efforts to do things but i think i think it's something we might have disagreed about when a prior conversation happened of I I strongly feel that when there is a regional movement mm -hmm. to get against the federal government to do something that the federal government wants to do A and they want to do B, it's not a it's not a state as a state. It's not like Colorado, for example, has you know is taking an action or Texas to take an action. It's that the the big sort people tend to live in areas where people think alike. They just happen to live inside the same border that they've drawn on a map. And it just happens to be a state that they got to see their point of view. But more and more, you know, it's not the states as states, um, but it's more regions and the states are just part of their regions. Because, again, when counter federal movements happen, 
it's often not the case. It's just one state on their own taking a position contrary to the federal government. It's often blocks of you know similar region, similar interests, similar demographics. Mm-hmm. And so I think that the states are really not very powerful at all anymore. So here's what I, I guess I would say. I, I don't fully agree with you in the sense that the states are not powerful. I think that that was our disagreement before, but yeah. whether it's still the states of states or is it just regions that happen to align with state borders? Yeah. See, I don't uh, the state government as an entity affects your day to day life in a really big way. And in on a lot of different levels that I guess just people don't normally think about. Yeah. And, and because everyone's, Such as? well, I was just because everyone's so focused on the national the mm-hmm. national conversations and the hot, the quote unquote litmus tests and hot button issues of the day. You know, when it comes to just criminal law, okay, um, every state has its own sort of criminal code, uh, criminal code, and the things. Now, mm-hmm. most codes are similar, you know, in most states, but there are significant differences when it comes. You mentioned civil civil law. You know, I know um, at least when I was taking the bar, you know, or when you're in law school and you're finishing law school, a lot of people, oh, where, where are you going to move to? What bar are you going to take? And that's always a hot button topic mm-hmm. at the time when you're getting close to law school, because usually where you take the bar in that state, then you're licensed to practice in that state. And unless you feel like taking a very rigorous exam multiple times over in multiple states, you usually are locked into one state for about a, usually about a five year period before you can start practicing in other states as long as you get because mm-hmm. you did this process you got reciprocity when you went from ohio down to kentucky but yeah you know there are certain states and that's where I, why i think i would disagree yeah. with you but well, you your point. So, so there are some states though that don't accept any form of reciprocity ever i could mm-hmm. be practicing law for 40 but years is that because their state's such a unique and special snowflake yes. or because they're just trying to protect their own attorneys no, 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 I no, no, no. there's there's certain bodies of law that are so regionally specific that that you would never learn them like when it comes like water rights in 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 is a very big issue in Arizona and New Mexico in the you know desert right and you know yeah. like water right there's water all over the place in Ohio we got too much of it a lot of the time yeah. no one cares so much about water rights but if I ever want to go get at least the last time I ever looked at this if I ever wanted to go and be licensed in Arizona they will allow reciprocity except for the portion of their law you still have to take a small portion yeah. of the test with regard to their state-specific water light, water right rules and regulations, and they're unwilling to accept it. New York, as far as I know, ne- will never accept anyone's bar. You always have to take theirs. And oftentimes, when you're in, at least in the law books I had in law school, you know the New York state decisions were often the minority view versus the the broader view accepted cases. It was, New York was often an, uh, an example of where you know New, the state of New York made a decision that turned right when most states would turn left. You know on any particular issue, so um, they have a lot of but unique I, decisions. I so. interpret those to be honestly the exceptions yeah. that prove the rule, because as someone who's practiced one part of their career in one state and then picked you know picked up st- pulled up stakes and moved to another state and practiced law, I can tell you practicing law in Ohio, practicing law in Kentucky. Not that, really, not that different. In Kentucky and Ohio are two states that have their neighbors. Generally, Midwestern. They have both, more or less. You know what's that? I said. I mean, you're more or less Midwestern. I mean, take make no, a big they, leap. Ohio culture and Kentucky culture is more dissimilar than you might expect. Yeah, but I don't think it's just Kentucky, Ohio. It's like more and more of law, civil and criminal, 
it has more in common than it has difference. You know, so when you, when in going from Ohio to Kentucky, looking at the things that are crim that have been are penal are subject to certain penalties as you know felony ones, twos, yeah. threes, four, five, you know capital murder, they're generally the same. There's slight disparities over how many years or how many months you're going to get, mm -hmm. but they are more the same than you are different. It's not like going from Ohio down down into Kentucky. I found like there's a situation like the purge or anything where yeah. once a once a year you're allowed to kill whoever you want <laughs> and yeah. just don't go out at night. Yeah. There's nothing crazy like that where a fundamental precept of law in one state, you go somewhere else and you feel like you're in a completely different country. It's in fact, the things that are different from one state for an, to another tend to be things that show up in news articles of, could you believe anyone still does this? Oh, like, uh, because or Oregon's are now debating about, That's exactly. about having, yeah. to pump their, having to pump their own gas. And there are a lot of yeah. people are very concerned about that. Um, yeah. What, new, but, Oregon and New Jersey mandates, mandate full service gas stations in the rest of the country because we don't do it anymore. Yeah. Think that's crazy. Yeah. But the other 48 States, that's just standard. But that, I think that's generally the case in what we're talking about now in generally law, civil war criminal, the core important things that you go from one place to another are going to be the same. Yeah, but that doesn't when mean the, the States aren't important. I guess that's, that's yeah. the thing. Like, and the water right you know, thing, like, that's in response to a definite physical difference in need there. Yeah. They sort of have to do things differently there. I mean, you can't – there is a huge difference between Ohio and that region, Arizona, not bigger yeah. states. Yeah. And but, so they have to do things differently. But if that's all I have to learn about it, it's different in law, that's nothing that, – that, no, that's but not going to be a big deal. My point, though, is, is while I agree that there is more uniformity maybe in the bodies of law – or similarity in the bodies of law from one state to the next, in both civil or criminal, it doesn't mean that the states are unimportant or that they don't affect your day-to-day -day life in very real and important ways. I'm not saying that. I just think they're nowhere near as important as they were in Hamilton's time. Mm, I, don't, I don't know. I mean, one of the things that really influences my thinking I'll, on I'll this just, I don't is, know that I'll say states have, have decreased in importance in your oh, I think life. I, th I think, I think perhaps in importance. the federal has just increased in importance. I don't know the one necessarily results in the others. Like, and I, I don't know that it's a, like a zero-sum game where a decrease I think in the is. state is mandated because by the you still need – there are st th certain things that you, you need to do then and you need to do now. And now you do it more at a federal level than you do at the state level. What influences my thinking on this to an extent, a couple years ago – as a vacation idea to my family, I, we did the Lincoln Trail down here in Kentucky. One of the things that's covered very heavily in doing that is the frustrations the Lincoln family had with Kentucky because the way that the law was run in Kentucky was sort of primitive back then. And they kept losing their land because they had to go through all these legal hoops to prove their claim and to show that they were entitled to the land and kept, kept getting kicked off of it. But within that, you really got the point of anything you wanted to do legally back then about, you know, certifying your land, you know, getting a license to do anything, you're going to your county seat. The county seat was pretty much the only level of government you cared about. You didn't have any federal taxes. There wasn't any federal tax back then. As far as our international diplomacy, that's for people in Washington to care about. It's not going to affect you in, you know, Eastern Kentucky, Western Kentucky. You know, that's the other side of the world. All you care about is the, you're going to the county seat 
to get all the important things you need to get done done. Yeah. And I mean, nowadays that's, I don't think most people take, you know, how important do people think of as their county seats now? It's certainly not the core of their life. It's not that the county seats are no longer important. Like if you go to get married and you need to register your marriage license, you're still going to the county seat, yeah. right? Like, okay, you're if you get charged as a crime, it's still in the county seat, federal, like the common police court in whatever county of the state that you're in. Uh, I mean, if you're being charged with a state crime and, it, you know, the, the county as a form of government, you know, or your snow plows being, you know, getting the snow off the road or, or your – you know, mm-hmm. your local emergency things when there's a fire. I mean, they're like still manages all of your your, your local EMS responses and, you know, the obligations. Yeah. And yes, there are now these federal plans of required uh, emergency first responder plans that get put in place now after recent disasters that the federal government and, and state governments have said, hey, at the local level, these things need to be in place. But the ones implementing it are still the local level, and those local governments are still very much a part of and very uh, your day to day existence. You just yeah. the focus is well. Maybe that's part of my maybe that's part. You bring yeah. up a good point. Maybe that's part of my thinking is that thing you listed. You know, putting out the fires. You know, you know, shoveling the streets. You know, handling the routine Myers licenses. Those are all things I'll admit. I just take for granted. You know, those have just become like facts of life. That's I mean, you just, back in back in eighteen oh one. You know, all of those things you didn't take for granted. If you wanted someone to help put out a fire at your house, you felt like you might need to get involved and start yeah. some kind of regional fire protection unit. I mean, or so here's the thing: like if nowadays, something happens, it just happens. You just assume that someone's going to be there. Yeah. And, and so, so why do you care? Because it's just going to happen. You yeah. don't feel like you're personally involved. And I guess that's my that's my point. Is like you just you look past the local, you know, township level county level seats of government and you move directly to thinking maybe about the state but usually just straight into the national conversation yeah. and, and again that just i think because that's, that's what's in front of your face now most people's yeah. face that's what's on their news feed i mean they can change their news feed if they wanted to and focus like i said solely on the twitter and facebook feeds of the local government but most people seem to be focused nationally and that's where the, that's where the, the because, eye is focused on and that's why i think it's things are different is because all of the things maybe where they felt all of the things before where they might have felt more invo- emotionally invested and involved with their local st- state governments because they need to change things to make them better to deliver more services if they're going to get more services from government you know if they're going to get a library to borrow books from if they're going to get the roads, you know, those were not things that just happened. Those were things they had to make happen. Yeah. But nowadays, you move to a city, okay, where the library's like, where the park's like, where the fire department's like, those are just things that, well, it is what it is. You know, I, you don't tend to feel like that's something you get involved with. That's just part and parcel of the city you live in. The things you feel like you can change and you'll get emotionally invested in, you'll go to protest, you'll sign petitions for, more and more is federal issues. And that's where I think it changes is because – you were tied emotionally to the county, to your locality in the past. You're not as tied now. Yeah, and and I'm s- sorry. You're getting a little. Uh, we're getting a little digital digitalization here, uh, and I okay. apologize if uh, people are listening. And uh, but um, you know we're having a really good conversation, but we are starting to run a little long on time. Um, so I guess I will just say that I agree with you to the extent that I think this paper is no longer relevant in the sense that, you know, Hamilton faces, it puts his focus on the, the belief that 
the state government and local county seat government are the governments that people really care about. And this far flung federal power is, is, is needs to worry about the big, you know, power of the state. I, I don't think that states are no longer, you know, unimportant and not, you know, and not of, of large importance in the day to day life of the individual. Mm-hmm. Just the federal government has become so much a part of people's focus and attention. And it's the thing that now draws the human eye uh, in America, uh, which mm-hmm. Hamilton talks about that, you know, it's no mm-hmm. fact human nature. Its affections are commonly, you know, in proportion to the distance or diffuseness. It The federal government's mm-hmm. no longer distant and diffuse because of the I technology. Agree. And so I that agree. is why this paper seems as though it doesn't apply anymore. But I guess we have a slight disagreement, not, not a, not a so. form. So as we move towards our close – I think the natural final question we need to ask is, do we need to do something to shore up the state authority? Is that a danger to our democracy that the states might not be able to counterbalance the federal government as much as they once did? Or does it not really matter? Is is the decline of state power really not an issue we need to worry about? Is there other interests or there other stakeholders, you know, that have risen to the fore and taken the balancing role up from the states and are doing it themselves. So it doesn't matter that states as states aren't as powerful as they used to be as compared to the federal government. Well, I don't know that you and I can solve that problem. <laughs> well, I'm not saying we're going to solve it. Um, I'm just saying, topic is, it yeah, is it a problem? Is it a problem? I don't know. You know, I just. Cause I don't think it is because I yeah. think I as know. we talked about, as we talked about in regards to another paper where they talked about, other actors coming up and, and with representing a multiplicity of interests mm-hmm. and those competing interests being enough to balance out federal authority. I think that to some degree has happened. I think where it used to be states as states that were pushing back against the federal government. Now I think it's more political parties who aren't in power in the federal government pushing back against the federal government as a way of trying to preserve power for themselves, advocacy groups, and regions. I think it's not, I think states and states aren't as much of an issue as they used to be, but I think that states as part of sub regions of the United States have taken over the torch and are taking on the, the role that states used to. Yeah. I mean, it's often similar to their political leanings, but you know, you'll have the sort of the coastal areas and certain other states, areas of uh, states representing one set of values and you have interior of the country representing another and they will regionally tend to press their issues. Um, So I don't think it's as big of a concern, but I do think that the states as states balancing out the federal government is no longer a feature, trait, or characteristic of, of our constitutional government the way it used to be, um, you know, under the, in say the first hundred years. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, speaking of states, uh, I just, uh, as a way, by way of closing, um, I wanted to give a shout out to a couple. Uh, for all of our listeners out there um, throughout Ohio and Kentucky, I want to say thank you. We've got, there seem to be some people listening in most states uh, across the nation. Excellent. Um, California, uh, we got some people out there that are definitely tuning in. So I want to say hi to you guys out there and New York. 
Uh, that I'm going to show my Buckeye pride here and just say that state up north, as we say here in Ohio. Uh, <laughs> no, no, no the, the Michigan, I'm Mid- assuming. Michigan, yes, yes, the state up north. See, uh, I can say it. You can say I'm Kentucky yeah. now. Um, and uh, <laughs> although I don't know what you're doing down in Kentucky because uh, Michigan's leading leading Kentucky carries, so you got to get on that. Uh, but uh, hey, if well, anybody, if anybody knows anybody out in uh, North Dakota, South Dakota. Uh, Montana, Wisconsin, or Mississippi, or Vermont. Those are the the, the last, and uh, Hawaii. Uh, those are the last the remaining else. states that we have not had anybody uh, tune into us and, and give us a listen. Um, so spread the word. And, yeah. You know, hey, I did want to say also that you know we got some people uh, listening abroad too. Want to give a quick shout out to mm-hmm. our friends up north in Canada. Um, we got uh, some people listening out in Norway. I uh, got some people listening out in New Zealand. So, uh, you know, and throughout uh, Europe. And um, and so, yeah, just you know, spread the word. And, uh, you know, if you uh, feel like joining the conversation, by all means, shoot us an email at thepaperlessfederalists at gmail.com. And, you know, if you got a question or a comment, uh, we'll see if we can work it in at some point and help guide the conversation. So, or hit us up on Facebook, too. Uh, make sure if you're listening uh, and you're downloading us through whatever app that you're using to download us that you like and subscribe, uh, maybe leave some feedback on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, we do appreciate you guys sticking with us. I know we were kind of sparse the last couple months as far as getting episodes out in in a quick fashion, but we're glad some of you decided to stick around. And we're going to see if we can redouble our efforts here and be a little more timely with the bi-weekly release of episodes. Uh, I know that uh, we're planning on recording a bunch uh, and then being a little bit more on top of it as far as releasing. So, yep. And I just want to say thanks again to everybody who's listening. And we'll see you next time at Fairless number 18, uh, a co-authorship this time for this first time with Alexander Hamilton and James Madison both chiming in. Yes. Uh, we'll see how that affects the tone and what they have to say in Federalist number 18. So until next time, thanks again for joining us, everybody. See you again. All right. Bye-bye. Bye.